I'd first like to know how many of you have ever loved someone with a mental illness or lost someone to suicide. It's, it's so common. I, I rarely go anywhere in the country that almost everyone in the room doesn't raise their hands, and yet it's so rarely spoken about. For us, it was December of 2006, and working for PGE, you likely remember it because it was a huge winter storm year. We had so many power lines down. There was few days of school. There was a kind of blanket over the city that was quite beautiful. But for us, it was a terrible time because we were lost in this state of not knowing. My husband had disappeared from a psychiatric center one day after he'd finished treatment, and for six weeks we'd wondered where he was. Now his sister had an idea that maybe he'd gone back to the forest because that was a place he always loved. His friends thought maybe he was on a beach in Mexico just chilling out. But deep in my heart, I knew that something was terribly, terribly wrong. And on this night, my daughter had asked me to make her favorite meal of risotto and crab cakes, and we were sitting around a fire with friends. And it was a very, very spooky moment when the phone rang, because I knew. And I picked up the phone, and I heard a soft-spoken officer from Clackamas County tell me that they'd found my husband in the Columbia River Gorge, and that he died by suicide. And this man, who was so kind and so filled with empathy on the phone, took the time to tell me that he thought that my husband looked like he was at peace. And he said that wasn't the case with so many people that they find in that area. I handed the phone back to my friend, and I walked back to the living room. And I will never forget this moment. My daughter, who was wearing a white dress with a red ribbon in her hair, looked at me, and her eyes were startled. She was very, very concerned and knew that something had gone wrong. And I had worked with the Dougie Center just in case this was the possibility to understand what to do next. And I told her the truth. I told her that her daddy would not be coming home and that he died. And the screaming wail she let out echoed through that room and out into the neighborhood. It was the shattering of a child's heart. And I think that moment for me was the moment that galvanized my work that I continue to do today because I so desperately wanted to prevent any other family from having to go through the horror that we both witnessed that night. Before that, I knew this about suicide, that it was something that scientists did, or really brilliant poets did, that it was something that was terribly secretive, that we needed to whisper about it. I knew someone who might have known someone who died by suicide, but I had no idea that I would be planning the funeral of a beloved man who died by suicide. I didn't know that 22 veterans a day die by suicide. I didn't know that it's the second fastest form of how kids that are 15 by 19 are dying. I had no idea that more people actually die from self-inflicted gunshot wounds than die by accidental gunshot wounds. But now I know the trauma and I know the scope of who suffers. For every one person that dies by suicide, 25 people attempt, 25 people. And every time there's a suicide, seven to 10 of us are profoundly affected. 
That's millions of people being affected by this public health crisis, and yet it's so rarely talked about. There's this us versus them mentality when it comes to mental health, that it's like, we're the healthy ones and you guys are the people with mental health problems. But that's just so far from the truth. We're all on a spectrum of wellness. And if you start with good sleep and good family structure and you have a secure job, you're probably pretty much over on the wealth side. But add in financial stress. Come from a home where there's domestic violence. Suffer a trauma like being a victim of childhood sex abuse. Have the kind of job that gives you toxic stress day after day until you have to quit, and then you worry about whether you can pay your mortgage, and you're over in the area where you can also be suffering from anxiety and depression. What I know from all of my investigation is that there's lots of people who have tons of genetic loading, meaning their parents had mental illnesses, who never go on to develop mental illnesses of their own. And then there's other people who have no genetic history, who actually suffer terribly because they've had so many trauma. So it's trauma that's at the root of most major mental illness. David certainly wasn't one of them. When I first met him, he walked into a coffee shop Six foot four, beautiful brown eyes. He was electric. He was so intelligent. He was the guy you always wanted on your trivial pursuit team. He knew everything about everything. He didn't watch TV. He read three books a week. He raised urban chickens and tended bees. He was the most interesting man I've ever met. And when our daughter was born, he carried her in his big arm like a football because it was so convenient for him. And as she got older, he went everywhere with her on his shoulders. He loved being a dad. He loved living in the Northwest. He skied, he mushroom hunt, he gardened. But his behavior worsened as our marriage went on and his business got way too busy. And I would notice things like he wasn't sleeping as well as he should. I also noticed that his eating changed. His eating patterns completely changed and he was putting on weight and not exercising like he normally did. He became very sensitive to light and sound, and he had difficulty actually controlling his emotions so that things where he would have been very, very patient in the past made him completely impulsive. I asked him to see someone, to go maybe talk to a therapist about what I was observing, and he exploded. He told me that I shouldn't be asking and that therapy was for crazy people. He was born into a family that really stigmatized mental health. Even though his mother and father both suffered from depression, they never told him that he actually came a family, from a family where this was really important to pay attention to. And so they stigmatized him to the point where he refused to ask for help. He saw it as being weak, as kind of a moral failing that he was having these problems with the way that he was thinking. When he finally did go for help, he went to a family friend who, who was a doctor who prescribed for him antidepressants. Now, antidepressants are really fantastic for people who suffer from depression, but they're extremely dangerous for people with bipolar disorder. And within 48 hours, he was leaning against our kitchen sink and said to me, I'm hearing voices telling me to jump from the Vista Bridge. 
He was pacing at all hours of the night, opening cupboards, slamming cupboards, agitated back and forth. He'd been forced into a state of akathisia, which affects about 20% of people who take SSRIs when they're not intended to take SSRIs. I was so concerned, I asked whether or not we could hospitalize him. And David, in front of the people who are most prone to be able to detect mental illness, convinced them that he was fine. It wasn't until his second suicide attempt that he was finally hospitalized. And I thought, finally, we're okay now. But David was actually put into a, a windowless room for a man who loved nature, there was nothing for him to do. He asked a nurse whether there was some activity that he could bide his time with 24 hours a day, and they actually handed him coloring crayons and a coloring book. This was a brilliant man who was so, so alert, and yet the drugs that they gave him, 13 drugs on his body, made him incapable of even carrying on a conversation. I visited David every day in psychiatric care and I found him tethered to a chair, his eyes darting back and forth. He was so pumped full of antipsychotics that he couldn't even alert the nurses that he was paralyzed. Psychopharmaceuticals are fabulous. They have helped so many Americans, but it's a true mystery as to how they work and why they work. And we have to acknowledge that mental health crises are so often a failing of not just our brains, but our hearts, and our communities, and our spirits. We have to start looking at mental health as a whole body concern. In the weeks and months after David's death, I really noticed something. I'd always felt so optimistic and so incredibly straight about my own mental health, but I was in trouble. I would wake up in the middle of the night with my heart pounding at about 145 beats per minute, and I thought I was dying. For the first time in my life, I was having panic attacks. I was so worried about the financial debt that David had left us. I was so worried that I was going to lose the house where I was going to raise my daughter. I was so worried about losing my job that I wasn't holding it together. So I did something I rarely do. I asked for help. I got a person who's very, very good at financials and accounting to come in and help me settle David's estate. And I also asked my sister, who's a Buddhist priest, to come and teach me the tenets of mindfulness. Mindfulness gets a bad rap now because it's so overused, but it is a wonderful way for us to actually watch the interior workings of our brain, to watch what the thoughts are that we're telling ourselves. I began to meditate for 15 to 30 minutes and then got to an hour a day. And this kind of calming of my brain, I sort of compared to a control-alt-delete. It's like a reset for your brain to be able to just calm down to focus. There were some other things that I did. I had a, a saying with my daughter because she loved pirates at the time. And we would come up with this saying called ARG every morning and every night. ARG, like the pirates. Acceptance, we're going to accept where we're at and what has happened to our family. Resilience, we can actually choose resilience. Gratitude, without gratitude, you're not going to recover. And happiness, we can actually choose happiness for the lives that we're still continuing to live. 
I wrote this book because I figured that there were enough people like me who needed to understand what the capacity was of a person who was suffering from mental health issues. And my office overlooked a stand of trees that was uh, really battered by those storms from 2006. The trees were all like broken and craggy. And I, I was thinking those trees are a lot like I am. And so I just went dormant that winter, like the trees, and I dug down really deep to try to understand what it was I'd been through. I read very, very deeply on grief, some of the philosophers around what we can do to become more resilient. I, I joined two boards for Foundation for Excellence in Mental Health Care and the Flawless Foundation to really work with people who had mental health concerns. And I noticed that spring that the trees had begun to bud again and by summer, there was this beautiful canopy. And I love the metaphor of that because trees don't have the option of dispensing with bad weather, and neither do we. We're going to go through these very, very difficult storms. We don't get to choose when they happen or why they happen. But what we can do is choose how we react to those difficulties. What was most helpful for me during this time and in case you ever want to be helpful to someone who's suffering from a mental illness, was actually talking with people about who David was. Not how he died, but who David was, the magic that he brought to our lives, the intelligence that he came to our house with every single day, the funny jokes, the way that he walked, the incredible way that he skied like a bat out of hell. When People die by suicide. There's a thought that you have to tiptoe around them. The family members are dying to have somebody speak to them in the way that you would speak to anyone who actually passed from cancer, heart disease, any other type of illness. What we actually need is that kind of empathy where casseroles show up and people go on Facebook and say, how can we help? What's hardest is that the stigma gets perpetuated in a way that even the families of people who die from suicide end up feeling like they're more isolated and more alone. What wasn't helpful was people who judged David's choice. In the weeks after he died, I was sitting still in my sweatpants and quite in a state of shock, and one of my friends said, you've got to get out of the house, come and have a glass of wine with us. And so I threw my hair up into a ponytail and I went to this apartment and a woman answered the door that I'd never seen before. She was a friend of one of my friends. And she said, you must feel so guilty. I, don't, I can't imagine anyone ever saying that to a person who'd lost someone to cancer or to heart disease. But because suicide is so misunderstood, she felt like it was within the realm that I had the power to somehow keep him alive. There were other people who said that was a selfish choice, that he should never have done that. But when you really begin to understand suicide, you understand that people who are suffering from this kind of mental health crisis are actually like trapped in a burning building. It's like jump or be burned. The psychic pain is so severe. What they're experiencing is so difficult. And it's hard for us because we can't see it. Of course, it's the inner working of the mind. But if they had wounds, these people would be split open and bleeding. They're suffering. This question of why we go through these difficult things is one that I've become somewhat obsessed by. I think that what I've come to is it's, it's the choice that we make 
because we get to be human. If we're going to be human, we're going to have these very, very difficult times in front of us. And I didn't move on from David's death. A lot of people said, well, you'll get closure and you move on. That wasn't my experience at all. I moved forward. I moved with that grief and I let it inform me about the choices that I wanted to make and who I wanted to interact with. And I got very specific about trying to derive meaning from almost everything that I did. In many ways, writing the book was my effort to try to reframe his life for my daughter, to let her remember this beautiful, funny, and sensitive man and not be so focused on the sensational way that he died. I wanted her to remember that dad who read to her every single night of her life. But just because you suffer one big trauma does not mean you're immunized from trauma, that nothing ever is going to happen to you again, and this is all you have to do. I was in a fantastic career two years ago, enjoying a new relationship. I'd finally recovered from the financial debt of what I'd gone through. And my daughter called from Stanford and she complained that she was very, very tired. And I said, well, you know, you've, you're a college student and you're taking a lot of hours. You're probably going through too much. She continued to complain about it and she had a rash on her legs. So I flew up to Stanford and we took her in for care. And the doctor looked at it and said, oh, you know, it could be mono. It looks like it's a virus. Get some rest, put on some topical cream. But the fatigue continued. And Sophie was coming home to do an internship for Nike. And on the plane ride back, her feet swelled, which really concerned me. And so I said, after you get off work your first day, we're gonna go into urgent care and have you tested. And uh, it didn't take that long because she passed out at work. I took her into urgent care and the woman who looked at her said, your daughter is so beautiful, she's so healthy, why would you want her blood tested? And the mama bear came out at me and I said, test her blood, we're not leaving until I have a blood test. That night at two o'clock in the morning, uh, the nurse called me in tears. And she said, your daughter's at serious risk of death. You need her to get to the emergency room. And Sophie was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia. I don't include this because it's such a difficult thing to hear. I include it because it's real. And I include it because the skills that I learned from actually paying attention to my own mental health the skills that I learned around mindfulness, around the ability to actually put myself in Sophie's shoes, to have optimism even in the face of something that was so dire and so serious, helped me through the most horrendous thing I've ever witnessed. I immediately called Dr. Brian Drucker, who as you know is probably one of the world's leading oncologists with a specialty in Sophie's type of leukemia, and got her into care very quickly. I didn't let my head spin out of control and do the worst case scenario about everything that could happen. And Sophie announced to me that day that she was going to go rejoin her classmates in Italy in September. This was August 5th. Dr. Drucker and I looked at one another and we said, okay. But Dr. Drucker did something so miraculous. He said to Sophie, I agree with you. You need to keep living your life. We're going to get you well enough to actually rejoin your classmates. 
So we worked on a nutrition plan together. We put Sophie on the most incredible plan for getting her immunizations and everything back to speed. And sure enough, she got on a plane in September to rejoin her classmates in Italy. She was diagnosed August 5th, and if you remember, that was the same week that the Columbia Gorge burned. The Columbia Gorge, the place that I'd hiked over and over with Sophie's dad and Sophie when she was in a pack, and later she learned to hike and took her own first backpack and our backpacking trips all through that. And so we sat in her hospital room and we watched the sky fill with ash, and I thought it was a perfect metaphor for the suffering that we were going through. When Sophie recovered, she wanted to go in the wheelchair and just look at the damage to the gorge. She said, you know, there's something so beautiful about the fragile nature of what we're witnessing here, Mom, but it'll come back. We know that fire is good for the forest, and I'm going to come back. I want to tell you, uh, last week before Sophie left to travel abroad in Europe, we went back to the Columbia Gorge, and she actually ran the trails with my dog. She ran past all of the burned out carcasses of those trees, and I remember her saying, it's almost like the two of us, the forest and me, have both been through something that's so devastating, but we're both going to recover. I honestly believe that we're here to remake ourselves again and again and again. And Sophie graduating from Stanford with honors, Phi Beta Kappa, is the best example I can think about somebody going through something very, very difficult, so trying, but actually looking at what it taught her. She was on track to be a person who could go to work for Bain or one of the big consulting companies and make a ton of money. And instead, Sophie told me, I want to do something good for the world, Mom. I have a master's now in sustainability. I'm going to go out and I'm going to try to help repair what's happening in our country right now, both emotionally and what's happening physically. I, I'm going to leave you with this challenge that is this. If you have the opportunity to remake yourself, what would you do? And why aren't you doing it now? This, I think, is Mary Oliver's question when she says, what is it you're going to do with this one wild and precious life? You don't need to wait for trauma to actually inform you of what you must be doing to live with integrity and passion and love. I'm so grateful for PGE because it gives me this opportunity to talk about my values. My values are enjoy this beautiful day. We are so incredibly lucky to be alive. Thank you.